Morning, church. It is good to be with you this morning. Um, this week, we actually are beginning a, a sermon series that we began in the spring, and it is based off our church covenant, which if you walked in, you probably got handed out. Um, uh, if you didn't, there's, some, there's, a, there's a whole stack of them in the back. Feel free to take one or two. Um, but what is a church covenant? Uh, this may be a reminder for, for most of us from the spring, but Aaron Menikoff, a pastor, says it really helpful, helpfully were, and, and well what a church covenant is. It's a, co- it's a commitment between church members to live out our Christian lives together. And Aaron Menikoff says this, if a statement of faith is a synopsis of right doctrine, the covenant s- summarizes right living. The covenant aids church leaders and members By describing what a Christian life looks like, proper use of a church covenant encourages members to take responsibility for each other's holiness. And so we we recently adopted this new church covenant um, earlier in the year, and we're using our our, our discipleship groups uh, to, to walk through it. And we're doing this for several reasons, and then also this sermon series, because we want to grow in our understanding of the covenant. And not just that it's, it's random promises, but that it, it's biblical foundation. Two, we want to review, renew our vision to be an active, vibrant church community known as joyful disciples of Jesus. And we want to flourish as a church. That is our desire. I think that's the Lord's desire for us, is our flourishing. And this, but this series is not just for members. It's also whether you've been attending Maranatha for this your first week. It's good to see you. We're so glad you're here. Please make yourself at home. Or if you've been attending for 10 years, what we're, what we're trying to do is lay out what we see as God's call on our life as a local church. We do this imperfectly, but this is what we're calling ourselves to. Because this is what God calls us to. And so we, we want to see this as an invitation for us to step in. So with that, would you join me in prayer as we begin? Um, also want to just pray for some of the things that are going on uh, pastorally as we uh, begin this morning. Would you pray with me, friends? Father, we thank you for the love that you have shown us. We thank you for your, your grace and your mercy that is, that is abounding towards us. We thank you for the the gift of gathering this morning, for the pleasure and the joy that it is. Lord, we, it is easy to come in, hurried from the week behind us, and anxious about the week ahead of us. It's easy to think of even what we have later this afternoon. Lord, I pray that we would bring all those those burdens from last week and anxieties from this week, and not just try to forget about them, but rather we bring them to you. We lay them down in front of you and say, this is what I'm bringing in. Lord, as we do, would you remind us that we come to your throne of grace where there is help in times of need. That you are the one that says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. May I, I pray that we would rest in your, your, your abounding love even this morning. We would know your nearness afresh. Lord, we, we pray for those who have just been sick for a long season. Glad to see some back this morning. Even Lisa, Lord, we, we thank you that she is back. But we also continue to pray for Jill, who's continually just battling the kind of aftershocks of COVID. We pray that you would continue to strengthen her. For those that are just battling just ongoing illness and struggle, Lord, we pray that you would strengthen them and give them endurance. Remind them that you are, you are their, their refuge and strength. That your rod and your staff, they comfort them that you were their good shepherd. Father, we pray for our church. We pray that you would help us to grow into a body, that continue to grow into a body that, that reflects our Savior well, that, that has deep relationships with one another, 
centered around Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would continue to grow in, in our love and affection for Christ and that it would propel us to live in light of your grace. Father, we pray for the groups that are beginning this week, for our discipleship groups. We, we pray that you would uh, just use these as a way that as, as covenant members we would dig deeper into life together with one another. That we would be active in, in pointing, one, doing spiritual good to one another. Deliberate spiritual good. That we would actively seek the welfare of one another. That we pray for the Bible studies and, and the women's retreat that's coming up. The men's retreat. We pray that these would be times where we would gather around your word and then you would deepen the roots for us as a church. Father, we pray for our missionaries of the month uh, of, of last month. We're still thinking about Dave and Kath Dixon and, and Lockheed um, Baptist Chapel in, in Scotland. We pray that you would continue to, to shepherd them through a season of transition and, and even affirm the call on Dave's life to lead that church even now. Pray for their family and all the work that they're doing in evangelism and in, in discipleship and outreach in, in, in their, their, their theology classes among the children in the church. We pray that they would, be, uh, would bear much fruit. And now as we come to your, your word, I pray that your spirit would help us to understand it, to open our eyes, that we would treasure your word. I pray that your spirit would even guide me as I, I lead this morning. For your, for your glory and our good, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So, for those who do not know, I'm John. I'm one of the, the pastors here. We have a bunch of little kids. Um, but our two youngest, Amelie and Talia, love to play animal charades. To be honest, we all kind of do, but they really do. They get super into it. They crawl all over the floor, uh, making sounds. Talia, who is three, she's still trying to figure out the rules. She often begins her round before she's even picked her animal. Um, and we'll often change what the animal is in like midterm without telling anybody. Oh, sorry. Um, the other thing is that her motions don't always line up with what she says she is. Um, like you're typically on safe ground if you say like a black cat, a snow leopard, or a jaguar. Those are kind of like her three go-tos. But outside of those things, if they're not that, the, the, the possibilities are endless. And as, as, we get, as they get older, they, they're learning how to play, and they can better imitate the animals. Trevor and Kaya are, are very good at that. And it's easy to guess the animal. You know, if it walks like a duck and talks like a duck, chances are it's a... Right. See, the character trait helps us identify the animal. And, and obviously, this principle is true in life, too, right? So... I'm not a big mall guy, right? I really like going to the mall, but where you shop for clothes tells you a lot about kind of what you're into. For example, whether you shop at Uniqlo or Aeropostale or Express or for those like 90s, early 2000s people, Hot Topic, like that tells you a lot about what you're into. And the church is meant to be marked by certain character traits as well. If you think about the night on which Jesus was betrayed and he, he, he was going to be arrested, if you remember that he first washes his disciples' feet before the Last Supper. And he says to his disciples what the definitive characteristic would be for his disciples. He said, the way that the world will know that you're mine is by your love for one another. He says this in John chapter 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Nearly 60 years later, the Apostle John restates this message in the passage that Angela read for us. So if you have your Bible, it's still open. That would be great. Turn it to 1 John chapter 4. We're going to begin with verse 7. I'm just going to read it again. It's a very short passage. Angie, you read it beautifully, by the way. Thank you. And John writes this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. 
And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the atoning sacrifice for our sin. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And verse 19, we love because he first loved us. The people of God, John says, are to be marked by love. That's what churches are known for these days, right? If you look at the news, no. That's why it's shocking and newsworthy. You know, last year, Pastor Michael walked us through the book of 1 John, and I don't want to recap all that's there. So if you want to go back, it's on the, the website. You can search and listen back to that series on 1 John. I highly recommend it. But these letters are these short, the, the 1 John 1, 2, uh, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, are these short, packed, powerful assurances to, to a, a, a disrupted church Assuring them of, of who they are in Christ and, and what they're called to live, to be as the people of God. <clears throat> you may recall that false teachers, false teachers had arisen from within the church and were preaching a different gospel. They denied the full divinity and humanity of Christ. They taught that salvation came through a special knowledge, not through the finished work of Jesus on the cross and his life, death, burial, and resurrection. As a result, these people were were, began to change what the priorities were for the Christian life. What the character character <laughs> characteristics, thank you, of the Christian life is or ought to be. So John, in response, writes to the church, to us, detailing what a true follower of Christ is, what their character traits are. It is the one who holds to a sound teaching of what was revealed through the scriptures and in the coming of Jesus. It is the one who obeys the commands of God, knowing that his commands are good and are good for us and good for the world. And lastly, it is the one who loves others as they have been loved by God. John's letter and these tests of authenticity are almost organized like in concentric rings. John repeats himself a lot. That's why I like John. I repeat myself a lot. But each time he kind of goes around, he, he unpacks more of what he, his, his point. And so this is not the first time he said to, for us to love one another in this little letter. But he gives us even more than he's given in the, in, in the other passages throughout this book. And what he's doing, he's reminding the followers of Jesus that love ought to be the main character trait of them. He exhorts them and us as a spiritual loving father to love one another, to commit to one another their affection and their very lives for the good of one another, for the glory of God. And the covenant promise is then based on this, this claim. So if you have the, the, the covenant in front of you, it's number five. That's the one we're looking at. We've, we've gone through one through four, and you can look at those in the, in, in the spring. And our covenant promise that we're, 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 we want to make with one another is we will humbly love one another as Christ loved us, and we will forgive one another as God has forgiven us. Easy to say, but hard to do. So together, let's consider this exhortation from John. Let's consider this promise. And as we do, see what, how John instructs us to fulfill this message. And he, and he gives us, he doesn't just tell us to do it. He gives us reasons why we ought to do it. And there's three. So the first reason is this. We're to love one another because, number one, 
God is love. Look at verses 7 and 8 again. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. We are to love one another because it is rooted in the very nature of God. And he says that God is love. It's not just that he does loving things or he acts lovingly, that those are true, but that he is love itself. God is, uh, John has said earlier that God is light, speaking of his moral purity and goodness. In his gospel, he also said uh, that God is spirit, speaking of his, his like, metaphysical nature. But here John says that God is the very source and fountainhead of all love. You see, love has its full origins and expression in who God is. So he actually gets to define the parameters of what love is. It flows out of him. All true love in this world is not found in a Frozen movie. All true love is a derivative of who God is, of his love. Because love is, is this, one of the chief character traits of who God is. It, it, it describes his very nature. And so this means that, again, God doesn't just simply act in loving ways, but all that he does is loving. And, and that's, we often, uh, in culture, we often pit God's love and his justice against each other his judgments, his wrath. But what this means is that even his judgments are loving. Love infuses everything that he does because that's who God is. But it also, what John is saying, it also accentuates God's, the personal nature of God. Love requires an object. It's not just a feeling. It, it, it has to be directed towards something or someone. It requires relationship. And that God is love. If God's eternal, it means that his love has been eternal. And it has existed before the foundations of the world. It was present in God for all eternity. We sung about the Trinity. We professed our faith through the Apostles' Creed in the Trinity. And, and love helps us understand at least some aspect of the dynamic of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. Means that the holy three in one, together from eternity past to eternity future, exist with and have among them this pure, full, abounding love. Within the Trinity, there is endless pouring out of delight, of adoration, of praise toward one another. If you want to know more about it, I highly recommend reading uh, Tim Keller's The Reason for God. The, one of the last chapters is called The Dance of God. And it really, he, he in a beautiful chapter, he, um, he unpacks this, this love and this fellowship among the Godhead, the, uh, among the Trinity. And um, let me just give a plug. This is free if you want to borrow it from our church library. And everyone should turn and look and give a clap to Angela, who curates our library. <clears throat> she loves all this attention, by the way. So, <clears throat> But please, that's a resource for you to sign out books, bring them back, and, and let's read well. So I highly recommend The Reason for God for you. But he talks about how love is, is, is this active work that in, is intertwined and, and is flowing among Father, Son, and Spirit. And it is out of this abundant love that has existed from eternity past that God has acted to create the world. God didn't, because God is love, he, there is relationship, but he didn't create the world in order to satisfy his love. He, he was not lacking something. He's like, you know what? I have all this love. Where am I going to put it? Oh, I'm going to create a world and people. No, he was perfect in his love. And out of the abundance, he said, I'm going to bring other people into it. And I'm going to give my love to others. It's going to overflow. He invites us into his love. It is, it is this kind of 
the central aspect of his character that flows into action. Not just among the Godhead, but also towards his, his image bearers, his creation. Jack Cottrell, uh, uh, he, he actually just died earlier last month, a uh, theologian, he, he, he writes this about describing God's love. He says it's both feeling and deed. It's affection and action. He says this, God's love is his self-giving affection for his image-bearing creatures and his unselfish concern for their well-being that leads him to act on their behalf and for their happiness and welfare. See that God is love, and then it flows out of him towards action. It is feeling and deed, affection and action. And there's a lot to that, that definition. We're going to come back to it in just a few minutes. But for now, just let's con- consider that God infuses love in all that he does, and he himself is the embodiment of it. And this is the point that John is making. It's impossible to say that we know God or that we've been born of him if we do not love one another. If Self-giving affection and unselfish concerns for the other does not characterize us and our dealings with one another, then we are at best misrepresenting God and at worst, or maybe at best deceiving ourselves and at worst misrepresenting God. Like at Maranatha, we love babies. We love having lots of them. It's something in the water. Be careful if you trying to slow down on babies. But when a family brings their new little bundle into the the fellowship for the first time, one of the first things we do is what? We look, who do they look like? Do they look like their mom or their dad? Why? Because they have their DNA. They're going to look like their parents, one of them, or some family member. The same is true about our love, it, it, it ought to be in our DNA because that's who God is. That's his DNA. He is love. So if we know him, if we've been born of him, then we will have that DNA. And this is why John says, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. John's writing this because the church had been unsettled and disrupted by those who professed to know they had this special knowledge of God and to be born of him. But they lacked a love for the people of God. John's saying that's a non sequitur. It it doesn't logically follow. Because love is the defining characteristic of the Christian. Because it's the defining characteristic of God. And if we've been born of him and know him, then we will have known and experienced his love in a way that transforms us. So to claim to, be, to know and be born of God and not love God's people would be saying, I hate baseball, and then go buy season tickets to the Mets. It's like saying, I love pizza, like authentic pizza, and then put pineapple on it. <laughs> they don't go together. The two contradict each other. Sadly, much of the Christian witness in this world, again, is not marked by this love. That's why often it's received just like noise, what we profess, because our our, our profession and our actions don't go together. Saying and doing is hard. The reality is, is because if if we're honest... Yes, we're called to love, but it is not easy. Because if, if we look around the room, let's look around the room, let's think about this. Don't point anybody out, but here we go. The family of God, the people in this room, you, me, can be very hard to love. We're often moody. We're selfish. We can be distant. We can be dismissive. We can be cantankerous. Or just meh toward others. I'll give you a little bit, but that's all I'm going to give you. Or you better come to me on my terms. But just because this is how we often operate, if we're honest with ourselves, I'm raising my hand here. I'm standing. This can be me. But just because people can act that way, it doesn't dismiss our obligation to be self-giving and others-minded in our love. Rather, 
our love demonstrates that we've experienced God when we move towards people like that, because that's how God has moved towards us. So John doesn't just say love because that's who God is, but also for the second reason, he goes, love one another because first God is love, and then second, God has loved you. Look at verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, or revealed, or disclosed, or displayed among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. See, it isn't just knowledge of God's love, but it's also this experience that, that again, propels us to love one another. God has revealed the depths of quality and magnitude of his love. We've been singing about it. The love of God has been revealed to the world in the coming of Jesus. If you remember what what Jack Cottrell said about what love is, it is God's love is, it's his self-giving affection for his image-bearing creatures, that's humanity, and his unselfish concern for their well-being that leads him to act on their behalf and for their happiness and welfare. The Father sending the Son, the Son's coming into the world, is the supreme picture of God's love for you and me. In these verses, we can hear echoes of John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We see that that, that John is going back to the work that God has done in sending his Son, of giving his Son. It It was God's love that motivated and moved him into this self sacrificing action, which benefited you and me. As we think about these verses, just let's ask a couple questions. Who did God send? He sent his only son, Jesus. I have one son. It's a, Trevor is 11. When he was one, we, we, my wife and I lived in Jamaica as missionaries, and Trevor, many of you know this story, he contracted meningitis somehow while we were at youth camp. Um, his fever was very high, not sure what to do. We ended up getting to a Kingston hospital where he would ultimately spend 10 days. And for the first two, it was hard to know whether or not he was going to make it or not. He, he, the, the, the doctors and nurses weren't giving us much information. They were, they were kind, but not really giving us any insight. And so I remember Kirsten would, was able to stay, and I had to kind of do a, a commuting thing. But I remember driving up to the hospital the first two days in particular, just pleading with the Lord, save my son. He's, he's our oldest. He was our first child. He's our only child at the moment. And he was just starting to come into a, like a personality at one years old, starting to kind of move around and, and, and come into his own. And I remember pleading with the Lord, would you heal him? I, I don't want to lose my son. I don't know that I could deal with that blow. And in God's incredible kindness, Trevor was healed. He's sitting right over there. I'd give a lot to help another. I wouldn't give my son. But God didn't even spare his only well-beloved son. Rather, in love, motivated, he sent, he gave his son for you and for me. One scholar says this, no greater gift of God is conceivable because no greater gift was possible. Jesus, referencing 2 Corinthians, Jesus was God's indescribable gift. God's love compelled him not to just to send someone, but his well-loved son. That's his love propelled him. His greatest treasure, God said, go. That's the, the depth of God's love, that he would send his only son. But what, did Je- what was Jesus sent to do? John continues, that the Father in love sent his son to save us. That we might live through him. His son was sent into the world to bring us life. 
And if you've been around church for a while, you've heard this, but I invite you to have fresh ears again. We needed Jesus because we were dead in our trespasses and sin. There was no life in, in ourselves. We were cut off from God, the very source of love and life. Sin from Adam to now has, has left us cut off from God and dead to anything, any relationship to him. See, Jesus didn't just come to tell us about God's love. He came to demonstrate it, to enact it, to prove it by offering himself as that atoning sacrifice. He went to the cross to pay your debt for sin and my debt for sin so that we might be forgiven and be brought back to God, to be given new life. Jesus and love led him to die for you and me so that we might live to God. Jesus came to be our substitute to absorb the full measure of God's wrath and judgment so that we might receive the full joy of his righteousness, the fullness of his mercy, the fullness of his grace, the fullness of his, his love and forgiveness. And if you ask, Jesus, why would you do that? He would say, love made me do it. It was his self-giving affection for his image-bearing creatures and his unselfish concern for their well-being. He, 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 he laid down his life for his friends that led him to act on their behalf and for their happiness and welfare. When we see the cross, we are meant to see the radical grace and love of God. The, the scriptures are full of this, and I'm just going to rip through a couple of these. John 15, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friend. Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Galatians 2, 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Ephesians 5, 2, and, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant and sacrifice to God, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Revelation 1, 5, to him who loves us and freed us from our sin by his blood. The, the cross is the, the scene by which we see God's judgment, but it's also these incredible, boundless love meet. It is the proof that God loves you. That's what he came to do. He came to die for you and for me to, to show us, to open God's love towards us and, and the, the life that God has for us. He opened the way for us. So who did he do it for? Sinners, rebels, those who have rejected him, those unworthy and undeserving. I love John Stott, and this is what he says. Uh, in his little commentary in this passage, he said, in the, in the ancient world outside Christianity, I think it's up here, in the ancient world outside Christianity, it was thought appropriate to love only those who were regarded as worthy of being loved. But God loves sinners who are unworthy of his love and indeed subject to his wrath. He loved us and sent his son to rescue us, not because we are love, lovable, but because he is love. So that the greatness of his love is seen in the costliness of his self-sacrifice for the wholly undeserving. It was loving for God to come and live among us. If Jesus just, if God just entered the world and, and dwelt among us, if, God, if the incarnation was all there was, that was incredibly loving of God. That is condescending to, to the earth below. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just teach us about God's righteousness. It's another thing altogether, and this is what he did. He died for his enemies, those who rejected him. What these verses show us is the beauty and magnitude of God's love. But to think about it, and as we think about it for us, I'm just going to, again, tick through a bunch of things. God's love is life-giving. To receive it is both... It is to receive both love and life from the very fountainhead of both. It's sacrificial. It looks to the welfare of another at his own expense. It is other-focused. Jesus laid down his life so that we would have life. It is costly. God's love is to be received freely. We don't earn it. 
but it certainly was not free. God's love accomplished our ransom, our redemption, not with perishable silver or gold, but by Jesus' very blood. It was, God's love is deliberate. His love moved him in a way that he knew our need and he addressed it specifically and deliberately. God's love led him to take action. He, he knew his people and was able to love in a deliberate way. God's love is welcoming. God's love swings wide the door in the, into the very presence and joy of God himself. It isn't exclusive or tribal. God's love welcomes sinners, those broken and hurting, and says, come home, find rest. I love you. God's love forgives. As far as the east is from the west, that is how far our sins have been removed because of the love of God if you've turned to Christ and hold fast to him. Psalm 86, 5 says, You, Lord, are forgiving and good, abounding in love to all who call on you. God's love forgives. It makes enemies friends, and it, so it, it therefore reconciles. Once there was enmity, now there is only grace. I don't know that there's a better verse or more encouraging verse in the Bible than Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God's love has put end to the enmity, end to the condemnation that we deserve so that we may have his fullness. God's love is genuine. It isn't just flattery or niceness. It's a genuine affection that leads to, again, deliberate action. It's sincere. It is bottomless and eternal. There is no end to God's love because there is no end to God. And so just as unfathomable as God is, so is his love. So abide in these, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Because faith will give way to sight. Hope will give way to the reality of being in Christ's presence. But love will continue forever. This love is to be received. To reject Christ is to reject the, the incredible love of God. To receive him, to turn from sin and, and, in faith and trust in Christ is to receive the full measure of his love. He doesn't hold any back. So if you've never received this love of God, I would invite you, come and talk to me or one of the other pastors. We would love to talk more about that. But let this be the day of your salvation. Let this day be the day that you experience afresh and, and, and for the first time, the fullness of God's love that comes through Christ. We could go on, but here's the point. God's love ought to overwhelm us. And two, God's love then ought to be the cause and catalyst of our love for one another. This is what he says. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If we've been the recipients of his love, how can it not change us, that kind of love? John's wording in verse 11 is really interesting. He says that we ought to love one another. It could be translated, and I think that's a great translation, but it could also be saying, if God so loved us, then we owe it to, what, to him to love others. Now, God's love is not like a quid pro quo. It's not, you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. But if you have received such love, how could you not be changed by it? That's what John's saying. So friends, if, if you have received God's love, if, if, you are, if you've been born again, if you know God and his love, then you want to love one another as you've been loved. Not just the people in our circle, but those who God's called you to be in fellowship with. Just like our own family, we don't get to pick who they are, we're brought into God's family. That's who we're to love. And we ought to love in a way that is, again, just like God has loved us, 
sacrificial, costly, deliberately, welcoming of others, a love that forgives, a love that reconciles, a love that is genuine, a love that's ongoing. As I thought about this passage and prayed, namely, like, where do I need to learn from this passage, Lord? And then what are you calling us to? I've thought about several things. One, we would make ourselves available. We would initiate conversations with others and be willing in those conversations to pursue the other, to get to know them, and, and be open for them to get to know us. Not just small talk, not just about the Jets and Giants, but how are we doing on the out, or just how we're doing on the outside, but truly we let other people know our hearts, our hopes, our fears, our expectations, our, our longings, our frustrations. That we would love in a way that would break down cliques and in-groups. Look, I'm not saying don't have friends that you're like, everyone's going to have friends that they're going to go deeper with. Even Jesus among the 12 had the three. But be aware of those outside the circle and be willing to welcome them in. When I was a teacher, I, I, there was, I, I had a study hall one period. And it was a bunch of juniors, and they were the worst class on the planet. Um, they were mean. They were very mean. And I remember this one, this one girl came. She moved from North Carolina to South Jersey. It's a big change. And she was very sweet, very kind. But in the study hall, I remember this one girl, kind of like the, the alpha female of, like, of the group. She, she actually formed a circle in my classroom and began to lead the other kids in the, in the study hall in old stories of what the school was like. In other words, not only did she physically cut this girl off from the, from, the, from the circle, by just reminiscing about what it was like in the past, she has no point of entry into that conversation. She was shunned, and she knew it. Uh, many of us in here, and I'm, I'm just going to say this, and I love you, church. I love you, so I say this. Many of you have been in church with each other for a long, long time, and you know people in those little groups deeply break out of those groups and add other people into it. That we wouldn't have just little, little orbs of groups that we would actually grow together. That we would learn how to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That we would share our struggles, our sins, our hardships with others. And when others share with us, we wouldn't just go, that must, be, that must stink, good luck. But rather, or go, that's weird. Rather, we would, we would circle around them. That we would show them the great, we'd remind them of God's great love for them, but also commit to walk with them, to encourage them, to help them. That we wouldn't be easily offended. I love politics, but boy, is it everywhere. You can't even go to like Little League games without talking about it. And it's easy to be offended and be tribal even in that. Or you have one preference and somebody else doesn't and so we're going to be offended by it. So we ought, to be, we ought to be resolved to not be easily offended. And personally, we should be devoted to not offend another. That we would be having them in our mind. That we would, when we sin against one another, it's going to happen we would be quick to repent and seek forgiveness. And when sinned against, we would be quick to forgive and not hold a grudge. That we would use our, our, our gifts and what, our talents and our, the things that God's given to us for the building up of the body. Uh, the picture on this is intentional. It's stones building up the church. That is what Paul says that the believer is supposed to be. There, there were rocks that are founded on the cornerstone of Christ built into the, into the church. Let us use our gifts for the building up of the saints. Not just holding back, oh, somebody else can do that. But that we would lean in. That we would outdo one another in, showing, in, in sharing encouragement and seeking to bless one another. When we are actively encouraging, then we're also, people can trust us to say, share, oh, come and say, 
hey, you have a blind spot here. There's sin, a sin pattern in your life. And, and I want to, do you notice that? And I come at you in love. That we would prioritize the gathering. Also, I'm going to be careful. That walk actually never changes distance. We start at 10.30 every morning, every Sunday. Like, the distance and the gap and the time it gets there will never change. Like, are we prioritizing to being present with one another? I don't mean that you have to be at everything Maranatha does in the week. I don't think that. I've never thought that. But do you prioritize those in the fellowship? Saying, I'm going to show up for you. And when I say I'm going to, I'm going to. I fail in this often. But will we prioritize the gathering, prioritize one another, that we would, would see that love grounds us. And this, doesn't just, this isn't just more rules. It's saying, this is how God has loved us. Let us then love one another. And we can do this. I, the, the way in which we step into that, one is that we would first cherish and reflect upon God's love for us. Listen to what Paul's is prayer for the Ephesians churches. It says this, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with the power through his, his spirit in your inner being. Verse 17 of chapter 3 in Ephesians. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. As we come to cherish and be overwhelmed by God's love for us, we can remember then that this is the same love that he's poured out to our brothers and sisters even those that frustrate us. Again, no one's here by accident. God has ordained that we would walk together in love. And this will stretch us, but it will also enrich us. So cherish God's love, and then use your imagination. And here's what I mean by that. Francis Buechner, another guy who just died this year, uh, says that, uh, this about having an imagination. He says, if you want to know what loving your neighbor look is all about, Look at them with more than your eyes. Try to know them for who they are inside their skin. Hear not just the words they speak, but the words they do not speak. Feel what it is like to be who they are. Another way to say this is, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Be proactive. Think about, think about that person. Consider them. And then move towards them. Wait, if you ever pray the, the Lord's Prayer, this is what your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven means. If God is love, then, and his, his people are to be a community that reflect his love, well then, the way that we bring about the kingdom of God in, in our midst, the way that we walk in it, is love. And I just want to say, I've experienced this love from you, Maranatha. I have seen active love in meals, in messages, in paying other bills, people's bills, welcoming the weak and the needy. We have seen, I've seen your generosity, your others' mindedness, your hospitality. I have seen the love that you share, the love that you have received yourself. And dear friends, I thank God and I praise you for it. What we're trying to do is just fan that into flame. Let, let's keep going in that way. Because here's, and this is the last part, and it's a very short last part. Verse 12, the third reason. He says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. The third reason we're to love one another is, is it because as we do, God's love will take up residence in us, and his love will be made complete in us. It's interesting that he begins this verse. It kind of seems John loves these little, like, misdirections. In verse 12, he says, no one has ever seen God. Huh? That's meant to draw you back to John, John's gospel in chapter 1. When, G, when he's talking about 
God becoming man, about the incarnation. And he says, no one has ever seen him. He, speaking about Jesus, he has made him known. Jesus is the revelation of who God is in the world. John is picking back up that thought and says, no one has ever seen God. But he doesn't say, we've seen him in Jesus here. He says, if we love one another, God abides in us. In other words, as we love, as we love, as God is loved, God is shown in the world around us. He is made visible in our love for one another. It's a shocking statement. That's what Paul says, isn't it? That God's love abides in us as we do this? What we just read, that, that you would be filled with, that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. That as we love, as we're, as we're saturated in God's love, that his presence abides with us, that we would know it in, in profound and amazing and deepening ways. God himself says, I will reside in you. Jesus tells us to abide in him in John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me. How do we do that? By remaining in his love, by loving one another with the love that we've received. And as we do then, his love, who he is, his very nature is projected and extended into the world. And as we do this, it's as God's love finds its completion or its fullness or its, its, its perfection in us. See, God's love isn't static. It's dynamically at work. It flows from him to us and then to one another and then into the world and all to the praise of his glory. God's love is not just something that we're to hold on to, but rather it finds as, 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 we, as we receive it, as we extend it, we actually come to a deeper appreciation of God's love for us. And we would grow and mature in him. So as we do, we not not only display God's love, but we become more enamored and thankful for it ourselves. So with all that, verse 19. Let it be said of us, we love because he first loved us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your love that sent Christ to be the atoning sacrifice who who brought us back to you. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to challenge, to, to think about our love, to think about your love and how it shapes ours. I pray that you would help us to love one another well. I pray that for myself. I fail in this so often. And I pray that we would be a church that loves because you first loved us. And that would be, that would be a mark of, our, of this local body, that we love one another as we have been loved. For your glory, we pray. It's in Christ's name, the one who loved us and gave himself up for us. Amen.